This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast for everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level. You came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion graded reader series, Chinese blogger, and always gives one hundred percent except when donating blood. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning. The Chinese Grammar Wiki, SinoSpice.com, and we'll go into survival mode if tickled. In this episode, John and I discuss the four strands of language learning developed by Paul Nation, a legendary researcher and vocabulary acquisition, and how we can use this framework to identify strengths and weaknesses in any language program. Guest interview is with Dan Keith, who, after 15 years of living in China, decided to buckle down and learn Chinese. He'll share with you the magic ingredient that helped him pull the language together and pass the HSK three and four exams. All this and more. Let's get to it. Hey guys, I'm Jared Turner. Hey, I'm John Pasden. John, we've got a great podcast today, as always, as always, and we're recording out of our studio here in Shanghai today. So it's always good to be with you. Yeah, good to be here, man. And it's it's definitely a little more interesting doing this face to face. Yeah, I mean, doing the parts great. We have great discussions, but you know, here I can like look you in your beady eyes. Okay, well, John, you have something that you wanted to bring up、uh, for our topic today. As you know, in Shanghai, I run a company called Allset Learning, and we do personalized one-on-one language learning. So I'm always looking at ways to build an effective language course for each learner. I read up on、uh, the literature in the field of second language acquisition, and just recently, I was reading a book by、uh, Paul Nation, one of the foremost experts in the field of Vocabulary acquisition, and in his introduction, he gives a nice little summary of what are the four main strands he calls them of a balanced language course. Now, Paul Nation, this guy is no lightweight, right? He's he's one of the foremost researchers in language acquisition or vocabulary. What's his area of specialty? Tell us a little bit more. Vocabulary acquisition, especially with regards to learning English, but most of the research he does is pretty generally applicable to other languages. So it's big in the realm of second language acquisition in general. Yeah, Paul Nation, he's the man. So tell us a little bit about what is he saying here. So he uses the word four strands, and I think he chose this word strand carefully. He's not saying skills. It's not like the listening, reading, speaking,、uh, writing. It's not those skills that we typically think about when we think of traditional language education. The four strands kind of evolve out of the more modern approach to learning a foreign language or a second language. It all starts with comprehensible input, so the、uh, meaning-focused input, and that is the first strand. So he says strands. I, I'm tempted to think of these maybe like four pillars, maybe four elements. I mean, four important factors. I wouldn't be surprised if he's avoiding certain words because other people use those in other like important papers, and,、mm. uh, and, and he's trying to not confuse them. But anyway, comprehensible input.、Uh, since Stephen Krashen、uh, made the term really popular in the field,、um, is very important. It's all based on meaning, being able to understand what is being thrown at you. So this is the first strand he's talking about. So, okay, and and I think the difference here is it's not so much just the focus on words, right? It's just the it's the being able to understand the meaning. Yeah. So to use his、uh, his words, this means that learners should have the opportunity to learn new language items through listening and reading activities, where the main focus is on the information in what they are listening to or reading. 
Now, this would be opposed to what? Okay, so that's the second strand, which is form-focused instruction. When we talk about form, it's like this is a word, this is a grammar pattern. And we think about learning a language, especially from a textbook in a classroom, you're usually talking about this form-focused instruction. Uh, we, we often think of it as just teaching language instruction. So this would be like stuff in the classroom, like, hey, I'm with my teacher, students, and we're trying to learn the language. Yeah, the teacher's like, you know, here's a pattern, read it, repeat after me, then do these drills. That, that, that's all form-focused instruction. So it would be like a textbook. Yeah, most of the stuff in a textbook would be form-focused. I mean, you can have other, other activities in a textbook, but a lot of it tends to be form-focused, especially if the teacher's uh, methods are more traditional. So, so far here, so we have the first step, essentially having the comprehensible input, making sure you can focus on the meaning, understanding what's going on. The first strand, yes. For, oh, okay, first strand. The second strand, form-focused instruction. This is really like deliberate instruction, right? This is like teacher teaching you. Right, and he's not calling them steps because they're not necessarily in this order, right? And then the third strand is meaning-focused output. So you're actually saying things in the target language, like saying things in Chinese, but you're actually trying to get some meaning across. You're not just, you know, reading meaningless sounds. You're actually communicating using the target language. Okay. So I am using what I've been learning. I have to have some sort of basis of knowledge to be able to do this, but you're focusing on output. Right. So output could be speaking and it could be writing. All right. So it's using what I know, like using what I have, right? Right. And the nice thing about output is when you realize what you can't actually say, then you know what to pay attention to when it comes to the input and the form-focused instruction. Okay. All right, so that was the third strand. And the fourth strand is fluency development. Let me read what he has to say about this. The fourth strand in a balanced course is fluency development. In activities which put this strand into action, learners do not work with new language. Instead, they become more fluent in using items they already know. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, that might sound kind of familiar. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's something we touched about in one of the last podcasts we had where you know, I'm saying, hey, if you only know 300 words, be fluent in those 300 words. Right. So from Paul Nation, the, uh, the leading expert in vocabulary acquisition, um, fluency development means using the language you already know rather than just always adding new vocabulary words, new grammar. You have to get better at using what you already know. Wow. I feel so validated right now. Well, you should. Yes. Um, and then at the very end, after he introduces the four strands, he does something which is really important, and he talks about the distribution. So, um, again, let me, uh, let me explain how this should play out in a language course. So he says, in a language course, the four strands should get roughly the same amount of time. This means that no more than 25% of the learning time in and out of class should be given to the direct study of language items. He's talking about form-focused teaching there. No less than 25% of the class time should be given to fluency development. If these strands are not equally represented, then the design of the course needs to be looked at again. So what he's emphasizing here is that not enough time is typically devoted to fluency development. He's being real nice and diplomatic about it, but you can tell that he knows that a lot of language teachers, or if it's not the teacher's fault, maybe it's the program's fault, they're not giving enough time to meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output, and then fluency development. I, I think anyone listening to this podcast knows that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but again, he says 25% for yeah. all of those four strands. Well, let's talk about what, what would that look like? Just for our listeners, the four things, again, it's the one, 
the first strand, comprehensible, meaning-focused input, so having input. Two, form-focused instruction, so that'd be maybe more deliberate learning, textbook, classroom teacher. Three, having meaning-focused output, so you're trying to speak, write, something like that. And then fourth, fluency development, I guess, when you're trying to just bring it all together. It's going to be conversational interaction with someone else in that language. So the four strands, and the key thing being here is that we should have equal balance of all four of these. Right, and what he's implying with that last thing I just read is that most people will give too much time to the form-focused instruction. What do you think it is like right now in your experience? You've worked with a lot of independent learners and stuff who've been working with tutors and maybe some schools here in China. What is your experience and what you've seen and how are they balancing these four aspects? Well, the issue with a lot of uh, programs is that they're kind of test-focused. And if you're test-focused, then you tend to have a textbook which addresses all the issues that are covered on the test. And then that typically lends to a form-focused approach uh, revolving around the textbook. Now, pretty much any test that has some kind of listening is going to have to address you know, input to some degree, but there's still not enough of it. It's definitely not the 25% across all four strands that, that Paul Nation talks about. I guess my experience is a little bit different than yours. I'm talking to a lot more elementary, middle school, high school, and even college language teachers, but I, I definitely see that same pattern where a lot of them, they're so focused on that instruction. It's interesting when I talk to them about, you know, hey, using graded readers, because that's one of the strands here, that's about having comprehensible, meaning-focused input, which is the first strand, and it also aids in the fluency development. But the number one objection you know, I have one te- teachers, they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. That's that's good. But, you know, we don't have enough time in the classroom to do that. You know, we're, we're, we're studying for the test. And it's back to that concept of we're studying, which translates into form-focused instruction, like we're having deliberate instruction. And so, and, and this is a very common thing. It's just there's not enough of that recycling. And it goes back to the thing of, like, there's the knowledge of the language versus the proficiency. And so they're just trying to build the knowledge, but that doesn't always translate into fluency. Yeah, and and in their defense, it's probably not their fault. Like I know a lot of teachers, they want to do more of you know the fluency development. Or, That's true. Or the other types of output. Yeah. But you know their their program requires them to do it. They don't get a say. Yeah, that's true. There's going to be some end of the year test, or they're trying to show the students are having you know improvement through better scores on the proficiency tests and things like that. Yeah, you're totally right. I 100% agree with that. So I, I think. Another question that our, that our listeners might have is, okay, so if you're supposed to be devoting 25% to these four different strands and my program doesn't do that, now what? Yeah. You just quit? You drop out? That's a good question. I, I think one thing that comes to my mind is what would a balanced program look like? 25%. I know, but what do these activities look like? Okay, so right, let's that, say that is not an easy question to answer. Exactly. So, like, maybe let's talk about some concrete things. What would a balanced program look like? And so, that's something that if a student's looking for a program, they can maybe identify some of these factors. What would it be? Okay, so one thing that's important to remember is that these are not steps, right? These are strands. And so, you're going to be jumping around. And uh, comprehensible input, there are a lot of different ways to deal with that. Um, when I attended the Actful Conference back in, uh, what year was that? I don't know. It was Boston. All right. That's not a year, though. No, it wasn't a year, but it was in 2000. That Boston year. Yeah, okay. It was in 14, 2014. I, I, got to, I got to meet uh, a lot of great teachers. They, they call themselves, you know, the CI uh, teachers. They're all about comprehensible input. So, for example, uh, Diane Neubauer, Pamela Rose. Um, they're, they're very much focused on comprehensible input in the classroom. And honestly, I think they would be a lot more 
qualified to talk about this because they have so much more uh, experience with it. But it's things like if you're in the very beginning, you know, you're in a beginner's lesson, one thing you can do that's not comprehensible input is just like open up the textbook. Okay, everybody turn to this page. Let's learn how you say hello. In Chinese, it's ni hao. Everyone repeat after me, ni hao. All right, so that's, that's a, a boring traditional approach, um, form-focused. But if the teacher insists on not speaking any English in the class from day one, and they just use the context of, oh, we're meeting for the first time. They use body language, and they, and they say ni hao, and they go around the room saying ni hao to everybody, shaking their hands or whatever. Then that is meaningful input, and people can learn from that. And, you know, the teacher insists that they repeat it, again, without using any English. Um, that, that's an example of uh, comprehensible input from zero. So that's comprehensible input. And then that's a very beginner course, right? Like you're saying, is that someone trying to speak in Chinese to you, but making sure that whatever it is, it's going to be understood. There's something that they can uh, imply the meaning, right? Yeah, there needs to be a context. Mm-hmm. So once you have a certain amount of vocabulary, then you can start doing things like uh, short video clips. So you can see what's happening in the video. It might be a situation that you can't really easily replicate in the classroom. And then you can see what people are saying. And people can kind of figure it out without really being really clear on the form. You know, maybe the grammar, the words are not totally clear, but they can see what's happening. They can infer the meaning. And that makes the language come alive. The whole, the whole meaningful input, right? Well, that's the word that came to mind was inferring. Like you're in situations where you can begin to infer the meaning. It's not explicitly told to you, but yeah, okay, I can figure out what's, trying, what's going on here and what this person's trying to say. Okay, great. What would meaning-focused output look like? All right, so another simple example that I like to use with, uh, with my clients is we know that the client just went on a trip to, say, you know, Beijing, and um, they have a lesson after their trip. Well, you just went on a trip, so show me some pictures of your trip and tell me, you know, where is this? Who is this? What were you doing? Most of our clients can handle that, and they, they want to share it. Maybe they even have a story. If they're at, the, at a high enough level, they can even tell a story about, you know, what's happening in the picture, and they want to communicate it. They can use a lot of the language that they already know. Uh, in some cases, the teacher might want to help them out by providing a word here or there. But um, for the most part, you know, it's all focused on output to convey information. So that's meaningful output. Okay. So now it's using what you know to say something. I've even done this a lot of times where, you know, I was learning Chinese. So something happened and I went to the office and I tried to tell them what happened in Chinese. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that was a really good exercise. But I can also think about this, like, uh, even if you were in a non-Chinese-speaking environment, well, you went home, something happened, You even if it, you just ate dinner and went to bed, you know, you can tell your teacher or your classmate or someone, what did you do last night in Chinese, right? You can just share little experiences and stories, right, things that are relevant to you. Right, so our brain is hardwired for language, and then humans are hardwired to want to communicate and language is the means by which we convey information. We learn information that we want to know, and then we pass on information that we want to share. So if your language learning does not involve this type of meaningful interaction, trading information, then there's a problem there. You're not, you're not taking advantage of the way that our brains are hardwired to interact with the world. And the fourth strand of being fluency development, what does this look like in a classroom? Because, you know, I can see here we have meaningful, like, comprehensible input, we have some meaningful output, but is just putting those together fluency development? Well, the thing that Paul Nation emphasized with fluency development was that you're using words you already know. And in some cases, it might be 
interactions that you've done many times before. So some people kind of make the, the mistake of, you know, chapter one in their textbook is telling your name and where you're from. So you do it a couple times and then you're like, okay, done, check. And then you move on and then you never do that again. But actually a lot of that basic language that you learn in the beginning, it needs extra practice. Not just because you're going to forget it, but because you, it just won't be super smooth until you've practiced it a lot of times. So anyone who's been to China knows that, you know, if you're, if you're living in China, you're taking taxi rides, uh, the driver is going to ask you over and over again, oh, where are you from? If they just keep saying the same thing over and over again and you keep answering more or less in the same way, that's a kind of fluency development. You're using the words you already know, you're understanding everything they're asking you, and then you're just practicing your, your answers. In some cases, that can be a kind of um, like a comprehensible input thing where they're asking a question in a different way than you're used to. Um, you probably have noticed this, Jerry, but in Chinese, there's there's got to be, I've counted them before, it's something like 10 Slightly different ways to ask where are you from. Yeah, yeah, that's it's true. It's like ni shi na li ren, ni tong nar lai, you know, all, all these different ways. So if you're a beginner, even that simple question, where are you from, can be kind of challenging because like every driver is going to give you a different variation. But because you have a context, because you can guess what he's asking you, it's meaningful. And then you can have that conversation. You can give a response that indicates whether or not you understood um, but the conversation where you know how to say everything and you know what he's saying, that's a kind of uh, fluency development exercise. You know, that makes sense. I recalls to mind uh, some research that I've seen regarding vocabulary acquisition. And it says that, you know, it takes 10 to 20 encounters with a word before it's truly acquired. There's a paper by uh, an academic called Rob Waring, who I hope to get on the show at one point. Uh, and he's one of the pro- foremost researchers in extensive reading. And what he says is that, yeah, it's going to take 10 to 20 times to encounter a word in context before maybe you truly acquire it, something part of your working vocabulary. But when we start looking about how it's used in different contexts, word pairs, just in the different situations, it's so many different types of ways that that's going to be used in so many different types of situations that, you know, it's just not enough to acquire the vocabulary. It's, it's got to get that feel for it. you got to know how it's used in whatever situation it is. To me, when I see this about fluency development, that's what comes to mind, that I need to be able to be comfortable enough with the, the vocabulary, not just know the meaning and not even just know the grammar pattern, but it's being feeling comfortable with that in many different contexts. Yeah, not just knowing one sentence that uses the word, right? Yeah. So we, it's kind of mean, I guess, to always pick on people that over-rely on flashcards, but you know, some people use flashcards. It's just a word and a meaning. There's no context. Um, that's not uh, super helpful for fluency. You got to do more than that. Mm-hmm. Some people uh, are a bit smart and they add a, a sample sentence, which yeah. is good. Um, that provides some context, but to really become fluent in all your vocabulary, you have to encounter it in different contexts and then you have to use it yourself in different contexts. Just a note something I have worked with a couple people on flashcards, because I'm honestly, I'm with you on this. I'm not a huge fan of flashcards, but used in the right way, they can be effective, they have their place. They have their place, but I've you know been doing some reading, helping some students with reading, but they're behind on their characters. So we find out what characters are they missing in the text that we're going to be reading. We use flashcards, try to help them level up a little bit there, and then we read it you know in the passage. We read it in the text, and and that helps them. Number one, they now have the pronunciation, have a meaning with it, but now they're seeing it in context in the text, and that's actually helped them quite a bit. And this is also a reason why every good dictionary, you look up a word. It tells you what it means in English, but then also has a bunch of uh, example sentences, right? 
Um, so if the word has a lot of examples, then that pr- helps provide different contexts. But it's obviously not the same if you're not encountering it in communication uh, on your own. So pulling this together, so I would, I would suggest this. So if anyone out there looking for a Chinese program, and let's just assume you have choices, right? <laughs> Sometimes you may be in an area where you don't have a lot of choices. But, you know, you see a program where it's like 90%, you know, classroom instruction, and then you have maybe uh, 10% an occasional opportunities to go do a, a Chinese corner, you know, just where you're speaking, things like that. That's probably not going to deliver as good as results as something who's a little bit less textbook heavy. And in class, there's more discussion, there's writing activities and things to help you to bring it all together. Right. And one of the interesting things that Paul Nation mentions is he says the 25% distribution for the four strands is in and out of the classroom. So the teacher can't really control how much homework the students do, you know, not too easily. But like, like you're saying, you can kind of compensate in other ways. So if you're, if you're learning in the classroom, it's mostly textbook based, and then you go and you find a tutor, well, then obviously you're not just going to want to find another textbook and do the exact same thing with a tutor because that's not going to help you build that fluency development. You, you want to focus on the areas that you're lacking. Yeah, that's a really good point because a lot of the guests we've even had on the show, they've talked about some of their experiences where they've gone through programs where it's just very instructionally heavy, but the ones who really excelled in that environment is they went out on the streets or they found a Chinese friend, they found a language partner. So they were in the classroom, you know, even up to four hours a day, but then they're going outside of the classroom and practicing what they've learned that day. And it could be through the listening and the listening, speaking, writing, whatever. So it's almost like it all comes down to common sense, right? You, you can learn from the textbook and from the teacher, but you got to get out there and practice as well. I will say one final comment on this is that uh, when, you're, when you're talking about this here, I, I did have an opportunity to talk to someone who'd been through the United States Foreign Service language program for learning Chinese. And it actually sound, seemed like it mirrored this pretty closely. When I talked about this, he says, yeah, there was the instruction, but there was a lot of discussion in the classroom. You had to write things, and then you were also had homework to do where it involved writing or you know, some of these other things. So it wasn't super instructionally heavy. And one interesting thing he said, the program, it, there, there's, and some people, they talk about their programs. It's all like people get weeded out of these programs. Maybe they're very difficult, right? People drop out. And sometimes teachers are just like they want to teach to those few who are really dedicated to learn Chinese. What was interesting to me about the foreign language program uh, at the State Department is that he said it's more like a pump than a filter. It's there to get you through. It's there to get you to proficiency in the language. It's not there to weed you out. And and everyone in his class and the ones before and after him that he knew of, everyone went through the program and passed the proficiency test. And that's great. I think that's a good example of something that's a balanced program. It's not there to weed you out. It's there to get you through. It's there to move you towards proficiency. And that's, that's really the goal. That's what you want to do. Yeah, and these concepts aren't new. They've been around for a while. Um, it's just that not every educational institution is implementing them, but clearly I think some of them are with, uh, with quite a lot of success. Okay, so now a word from our sponsor. And our sponsor today is Mandarin Companion. So today we want to tell you about the second Breakthrough Level book that's coming out. Breakthrough Level is the 150-character level. Um, It's the one that comes before Level 1. And the second book is called My Teacher is a Martian. This is going to be a great story. When John and I were coming up with uh, new stories for this level, uh, we were really constricted on what we could do. 
based on the characters that were available for the story. Not just the characters, but the words, right? You only have these 150 characters, and we're looking like at the list. Like we have these verbs and these nouns, and and we have to make a story. And two characters we had was huo for fire, and then xing, right? you know, then xing 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 qi, you know, for like week or star. So uh, we we realized, hey, wait, huo xing, that's Mars. We could do something about Mars. And through the discussion, we said, hey. My teacher's from Mars. And so we got this fun story about these two kids with this teacher who's very strange. It's talking about Mars all the time. They have very many reasons to suspect that this teacher is legitimately a Martian. Could that actually be the case in our story? You're going to have to find out. The book is going to be out very shortly. This can be the second book of the five books of the Breakthrough Level to be released this summer. Yep. So the other three are also in the pipeline. They're coming out as soon as we can get them done. But obviously, quality is important. So uh, we'll get them out soon. So look for it on mannerincompanion.com. Okay. So now for rants and raves. I have a rave today. I'm going to do something a little bit off the beaten track. I'm going to talk about a fruit that I discovered in China. I'd never had it before coming to China. Uh, If you come to China, I recommend you try it. It's a, uh, a fruit that is in season in early summer. It is called in Chinese Yang Mei. And, uh, you know, it's Y-A-N-G-M-E-I, two second tones. And uh, I think in English there are a couple different names. There's like Bayberry and – I've seen them called Yumberry. I don't it's know. It like doesn't seem like there's a standard translation. But they're this kind of dark purple, slightly pinkish, like spiky-looking ball. But they're not actually spiky like um, like some of those other fruits. About the size of a walnut. Yeah, they're, they're really bumpy and they look kind of fuzzy, but they're not really fuzzy. Anyway, they have a pit. There's a pit in the middle, and it's kind of like fibers, fibrous, juicy things grow throughout. And from pulpy, the and it's it's kind of, yeah. you know, tart. Anyway, I think they're awesome. And, you know, a lot of times you go to a foreign country, and the food is so foreign and weird. Maybe you don't really like it. But there are some things which are easy to like, and Yang Mei is one of them. Only out in May and June. Yeah, more June than May usually, I think. But they only last like a couple of days, because if you even take them past like three days, they're kind of fermented and ugh, they're not good. Oh, and also a lot of people put them in uh, baijiu, the, the white wine. White rice liquor. And then they uh, they let that ferment. I don't think it ferments. They let it soak. Mm. And they think of it as kind of a medicine for uh, the runs. Oh, okay, great. Good to know. Yeah, All right. there you go. But young mayberries, I love those. My wife loves those. They're They're fantastic. Okay, do you have a rant or a rave, Jared? Hey, John, I'm just going to totally copy you, all right? So I'll, I'll have a, a rave, too, and uh, I'll have to put in my favorite Chinese fruit. I love young mayberries, but actually my favorite fruit in China, absolute favorite, is the yozi. The pomelo. Pomelo, yes. Now, you can get some of these in the U.S., uh, I think they also will come in like Mexico, probably some other tropical type areas. Oh, and if you don't know what a pomelo is, I, I didn't know before I came to China either. It's kind of like a grapefruit, but it's a little different. It has a thicker skin. Um, there are some. Hey, this is this is my rave. Okay. So we have the, if you haven't had it, the grape, it's like a large grapefruit. It's with a thicker skin. Thanks, John. Anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, they're big. So think about the size of a cantaloupe. And then you peel it out, and it has individual slices. Think of like an orange slice in there. But it's a tart like a grapefruit, but it's sweeter than a grapefruit. It's a lot like a grapefruit. It is. It's like a giant grapefruit, but not as tart. It's more sweet than tart. It's citrusy. And usually not as juicy. No. no I, well, it depends on what time. Okay, you can't get them too early in the season. You get them like the first month they come out, no, they're dry. They're not good. So you usually got to wait about a month after they come in. Uh, and at least in Shanghai, it is a winter fruit. 
So they start coming out in like October, but you don't want to really get them to like November. And then December, January, February, they're really good. But I, I don't know where they actually grow, but because here in Shanghai, like I said, it's a winter fruit. But they, I think in other areas, it's more of a you know a summer fruit. But it's fantastic. I absolutely love them. They're my favorite fruit in China. They're one of my favorite fruits of all time. Period. Love. You all like right. Yodzi. So no matter when you're listening to this podcast, you have either Yang Mei season or Yodzi season coming up in China. And guys, we want to put out a request there. If you are enjoying this podcast, if you feel like you're getting something out of it, please leave us a review, especially on iTunes. If you can go to iTunes, you can log in there. You can give us a review. Give us a five-star. Tell us what you think about the show. You can also send us some feedback directly and send us an email at feedback at mandarincompanion.com. Also, if you have a question for our podcast, something you think you'd like for us to talk about or discuss, let us know. You can email us. You can also find us through our website at mandarincompanion.com. Yeah, we do feature those in our podcast. You don't have to be Paul Nation to, to get a mention on our podcast. But Paul Nation, if you're listening, we, we'd also love to hear from you too. We've actually communicated with him before. He's a really nice guy. He is a nice guy, hmm. I think, based on what you've told me. Well, he communicated with me. Good for you, John. Dan, how are you doing? Jared, I'm fine. How are you? This is a guy I've been trying to get on our show for a while. My name is Daniel Keefe. I'm from Rochester, New York. I met Dan shortly after I first came to China in 2010. We had both attended Purdue University and met through our alumni organization in Shanghai. However, he had been in China much longer than I. I came to China in 1996. Dan and I had the chance to sit down together in our Shanghai studio where he shared his journey towards Chinese proficiency. As Dan gets into the details of his story, you'll hear him talk about his point of inflection in his studies, the point where it really started to come together, a real-life example of what John and I are always talking about. Stay with us. And I do remember we were in, when I say we, is my wife and I and our, our two kids at the time. And uh, we came with two, we left with three. And uh, when we came in 1996, it was a vastly different city, the city of Shanghai, vastly different from what it is today. In fact, there was only, at the time, two expressways, and uh, there was uh, just a couple of subway lines and very few Western restaurants. And I remember landing, and uh, one of the first times, the things that you noticed about Shanghai at that time is at night, how dark this city is. You know how bright it is now. Yeah, yeah. And at night, you'd walk, after it got dark out, it was dark. Dark, really? Yeah, and there's just a few places to go. So we stayed at the Portman Hotel, and there was a, you know, a few Western restaurants, and it really had just started to develop. And from there, it was on a trajectory that was just unbelievable. And you see what it is today, just a phenomenal place, a world-class city by any standard. So what brought you to Shanghai? I came to, to Shanghai to work for Eastman Kodak, a company that would have been famous to people of my generation and anybody before and perhaps it still is with younger people, but it was known as a film company. And uh, we came here, when I say we, that was me and two other managers from Kodak. And we came to start a, um, a camera factory, not a digital camera factory, a, camera, a factory that actually made film cameras. And at the time, Kodak uh, was one of the biggest investors in China up until that point. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a couple of them. GM came, but GM was a little bit later than us, maybe about a year, six months, a year later. But uh, Kodak had invested at the time $600 million. They committed $600 million to invest and buy up some old state-run companies and convert them. And of that $600 million, 
I think five hundred and ninety-five million went to the film business, which yeah. I wasn't in. I was in the camera business. We got the remaining five million, <laughs> and we were told to start this small factory here in uh, over in Pudong, actually. And actually, that factory still exists. I'm very proud to say that. Oh, did you? And you set that up? Uh, yes, that was one of the, the 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 few, one of the three that did that. And again, we made film cameras there for a while. It doesn't make film cameras anymore. I don't think anybody's actually doing that anymore. We did convert it to making digital cameras, and it makes other stuff right now. But I've been over there occasionally, and some of the people that uh, started with us are still there. So it's one of the things actually I'm very proud of, that that factory still continues. Very good investment for very little money. Well, when you first came to China, did you speak any Chinese? Uh, Very little. Um, I had taken some lessons prior to this, but very, very few. And I remember actually one of the first days – actually, I said my wife, Margaret, who's sitting outside right now. And we were going to the um, the Peace Hotel. I, I kept telling the taxi driver that I wanted to go to the Heping Fandian. But he had no idea what I was saying. And I thought, well, what language is he speaking then? Because I'm quite certain that I'm speaking this correctly. The extent of my language capability at that time was very, very limited. Like, to how limited? I mean, what were you able to even to do at that point? Uh, very, very simple, simple things. In fact, I thought I could do more than I really could because up until that time I had a teacher in the U.S. And um, I took maybe one lesson a week, maybe two, so a couple of hours. And she was a good teacher. I liked her a lot. But I had never actually been in China, you know, prior to taking all those lessons. It, coming here is a different experience. Uh, and actually, I think uh, uh, part of it was uh, one of my teachers was from Taiwan. When I speak to, to people from Taiwan, actually, I always find that the way the accent in Taiwan is actually very, very clear. It's very standard Mandarin. And when people talk that way, I can understand it. But when you come to Shanghai, you find out that there's actually an accent here. And the accent can be pretty strong. And there's other accents around the country as well. And once you start to hear that, it kind of strains your ear a little bit. And it's a little bit harder to understand. And you have to make some adjustments. It doesn't take too long to pick up on the accent. But nonetheless, that was an adjustment. So you got here, you had studied a little bit of Chinese. And were you taking some lessons after you arrived? Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, I remember the teacher was a a friend of one of our employees, and his name was Stone. And he was a good guy, but he wasn't a teacher. He was actually a graduate student, I think, in um, IT or something like that. And he had never taught, but he was looking for money on the side. And, and he was a good guy. I liked him. And I didn't pay him that much. At the time, I, I think about what I paid him, which is like 50 renminbi an hour or something like that, which is is nothing right now, right? But at the time, I got a, a graduate-level student who was, uh, um, had excellent English language skills, and he was trying his own skill at teaching, and he actually did a pretty good job. So I had him for about a year or so. All right. So you got here, and I imagine at the time, like I said, it was just a very different city sure at was. that time. Yeah. How many people even spoke English in your sphere and in your circles at that point? The people that I communicated with on a daily basis, I mean, in our neighborhood, for example, was in a walled-in community. So everybody was, they were all foreigners. So they all spoke English. And then our first line of communication with either the management of the, the, the housing complex that we lived in or the first line of managers that I had at work all spoke English. So you can imagine during the course of a day, most of my uh, discussions were still in English language because of the business aspect of it. Uh, But beyond that, the next level, um, well, that's where English capability drops off at that time significantly. I'd say right now, though, Shanghai, it's, it's actually a very easy city to get by 
if you don't know any Chinese. Unfortunately, it's that way. And most of the places that foreigners tend to go to, the restaurants and bars and stuff like that, there'll be a basic assumption when you walk in the door that you don't understand any Chinese. And they'll throw somebody at you that will speak English or they'll put the English menu out in front of you or something like that. So they really don't test it. In some ways, that makes you a little bit lazy living. Living here makes you lazy learning the language. But it doesn't take long as you go outside of Shanghai. As a matter of fact, like 100 feet beyond the county line, right, all of a sudden the, the language capability is much, it's a much different story. Uh, if you're learning the language, that's where you're really going to learn it. I found, again, during the daily business, I really didn't learn that much at all. Uh, but it was in situations where I was really forced to use it that my language uh, actually improved a lot. In fact, well into my tenure here, and I'm going to say I've been here for 20 years, so it was like year 17, year 18, I was doing some consulting work, and I was, I was just in the city of Hangzhou. It was a factory outside of the city of Hangzhou, and they brought me in for a while as an interim general manager, and there was only maybe one person in the staff that spoke English. So if I wanted to get something done, you know, I had to use everything inside of me, you know, <laughs> to, to communicate. And actually, I found that, to, to my surprise, I was sitting there after a couple of weeks going, wow, you know, my Chinese has really improved a lot. Just, just by using it. It's not like I learned anything new. I was just using it more frequently every day, every, all the time I was using it. And there's no question that if you really want to learn the language, I think that's how you got to do it, you know, using going to class. I mean, some people come over here and they go to class once a week, twice a week, and they'll spend half of the time in the class talking English to their teacher, right? And it just doesn't, it doesn't help you. And I tell people, don't even bother wasting your time. If that's all you're going to do is speak Chinese one or two hours a week in a class, you're, you're not going to accomplish anything. you got to get out there and use it. There are some people who are intrepid enough, I think, to go out and proactively use it. But in most cases, I think it's the other way around when you're forced to use it. I think that's when you start to get good. Well, something I would like to get a better understanding about, you know, you had a, a level of Chinese, maybe probably elementary level. Yeah, that'd be kind, probably sub-elementary. <laughs> you know, sub, sub yeah. But then in more recent years, you yeah. took some time to really learn the language. I and, did. And you've achieved a, a be much better level of proficiency. I did. So what I'm curious now is I, I want to know, like, after, you know— how many, I don't know how many it was, was 16, 17 years that you said, okay, now I'm really going to start learning the language here. Yeah. It, uh, uh, what, it, what happened? It was probably more, um, I can't, I don't know exactly where it was on the timeline, but it was probably I was in here for more than 10 years. And your listeners are going to right now uh, be thinking, oh, 10 years, somebody was here and didn't learn the language. Well, it's true. It happens. And for precisely the reason I just said, it's a very easy place to, to get by. But I realized that the, the process that was being used here to teach Chinese, very common, was to use pinyin and that there's plenty of books using pinyin and there's a teacher who uses pinyin. And I just was getting nowhere with those. So I decided to actually change up a little bit. And I finally said to the teacher, I said, Look, what I really want to do here is learn how to read. And I finally got a teacher. Her name is Sherry, Sherry Lee. I remember Sherry and she's still around here. And uh, she's the one who, and I don't know if she did anything magical, but she's the one that finally started bringing all the characters. And we'd spend most of the class just reading. And you think about that, it just makes a lot of sense, right? Why would you learn a language only by listening or speaking it? And certainly there's people, I mean, that's the way children do it. But, and, and it's very effective. But nonetheless, I found that once I decided to start to read, it opened up 
all kinds of possibilities for me, and I found my language ability increased dramatically. And I still think it's because I decided to read. Now, there's a lot of road signs and menus and stuff like that. I get the gist of all of that now. I can't read a newspaper, but nonetheless, it's made a big difference in my daily life. So I made the decision to actually uh, learn how to read, and then I took another step. There's this these HSK exams, which is the, the Chinese uh, country language proficiency exam for foreigners, the Hanyu Shui Ping Kaosha HSK. And it's at six different levels. You know, level, level one is elementary, level six, level five and level six, you're basically fluent in those. Uh, I believe you're, you're fluent in, at those levels. And I decided to start to study to take those exams. And in those exams, you have to read, you have to write, and you have to listen. You don't have to speak, but you have to do the other ones. And reading is a very, very important part of it. Um, so I started to progress through those levels. Actually, I, I, I think I started with level three. Level one and level two were so simple, I didn't bother taking that exam. So I studied for level three, and I can't remember how many characters that was, maybe 600 or so. Yeah, it's six, level three, HSK three, 600 characters. Okay, and then level level four, I think they, they, they double every time. Yeah, yeah. so so then uh, I did level three without any problem, and then it took me about another year to get to level four uh, with the hard part, just learning those 1,200 characters. So once I started doing that and studying uh, for that, I, and I, I thought that's when I really started to learn a lot. People say, oh, no, you're just studying for the test. You won't learn anything. Although, no, actually, it's just the opposite. I learned the most when I started studying for those tests. Because it really forced me to, for one, I had a goal, right? A goal mm-hmm. of proficiency, a level that I needed to achieve. And again, it took me a while to do it, but I finally did it. And I have that that exam paper, the score. I still have it. I should get it framed. And I pull yeah, it out every should. now and then. And I said, look, <laughs> at, on my best day, that was it right there, that day. <laughs> that was good. So you think it was uh, characters, learning characters that provided the catalyst for you learning yeah, Chinese. absolutely. No question about it. Yeah. So, so why do you think that was the missing link? What was it? Well, what is it about reading or reading or characters that provided you, you think that, okay, now I'm really starting to get this language? Well, let me give you a, maybe an example is um, uh, like watching television, okay, a Chinese television. Actually, there's characters on the bottom of the screen on almost every television station. Subtitles, right? Subtitles. And... Um, I would listen to people on television, but sometimes they'd talk real fast or an accent. I wouldn't know what they said. But right down below are the uh, the subtitles. So I could actually put the two together. And it made so much more sense to me now. I thought, okay, now I understood what he said or she said because I was able to read it. And then I was just able to read more things, uh, signs, road signs, uh, a lot of different things around the city that just made it a lot easier for me. So just reading... Um, uh, I know you. I know it's there's English language in the subway system, but I've gotten to the point where I, I can just read the Chinese to know where I'm going, right? And just the roadside saying this road is this way, this road is that way. The, the characters are bigger anyway; you can see them further off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. So I I can read all of that without 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 much difficulty. How did that feel? How was that? What was your experience like? You said uh, okay, it's, I, it's night and day, absolutely yeah. night and day. Yeah, yeah, no question. And that's what really when I came to the conclusion that the way that that the Chinese language is being taught to foreigners or traditionally has been taught to foreigners is is incomplete. I'm not going to say it's wrong. I'm just going to say it's very incomplete. If, if that's all you did, I, I don't think you'd progress very far. I think that, that well, a lot of foreigners come here with the ideas that they just want to get the basics anyway. They really don't have any ambition to be fluent. 
And if you just want the basics, just to be able to do simple communication with people, then that, you'll, that's all you'll ever achieve. And again, for most people, that's fine. So what now have you been able to do with having learned the language like in a more proficient way versus before when you still had maybe more rudimentary understanding of the Chinese? Well, as you and I were talking just before the podcast, I remember one particular uh, point where there was a time where I took that HSK level four test. I thought that was probably the, the around that time was when my Chinese language was the best. I had a lot of uh, business dinners, uh, discussions with customers, suppliers. And in most cases, they would generally have one or two people that speak English. And, and they'd, at, at a dinner, they'd put you next to that person and then you'd be able to communicate with the rest of the group. That particular day that I remember, we had uh, a couple of people from our home office in the U.S. So we had two big tables of um, both uh, Americans and, and Chinese. And they put all the other Americans at the other table. And they put me at the table that people were going to speak Chinese at. I found that, that much to my surprise, I could handle it. I got through it. And I was telling you a little bit earlier, too, I don't know how long the dinner lasted, but I I was hoping it would end in the next minute, right? I mean, this just, <laughs> just tried my Chinese language ability to the absolute maximum. But I remember walking away going, wow, I did it. I managed that dinner. People understood me. And, and what's more important is you start to understand Chinese culture and people on a, per, a more personal basis. If you, don't have, if you just talk to somebody like in a normal conversation – it's really hard to hard to describe the difference, but it is a huge difference compared to having somebody translate for you. You can never really have a, a, a biz, good business relationship if it's not personal around here. And always having somebody translate, it'll never be personal. And I found that in some cases that um, I was able to do that. I remember another case where I just went to a supplier by myself somewhere in Zhejiang province. The father had owned the business and there was a son or daughter that had been to school in the U.K., uh, but then that son or daughter had to get up and leave. So it was just me and the father. And the father was about my age, too. So we were sitting there and just communicating in Chinese, and we started talking about our lives, how his life was so different from mine and how his, you know, what things were like during the 1960s and 70s and 80s. And I managed to do all that in Chinese, and it's kind of more of a personal connection. And he remembered that, too. Mm. Yeah, so he remembered the conversation he had with me because he mentioned it a couple times to other people. And I remember the conversation with him. So it's just getting to know people the way that you would like to know them rather than through translation or somebody who just speaks English as a second language. That sounds like a pretty neat experience of just connecting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And where I'm always banging the drum, learning Chinese, but don't forget characters, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting to me to see how that's made that connection. There's all sorts of mountains of research around reading in English, how it boosts the comprehension of the language. But yeah. I think what's interesting to you is this is probably the most um, distinct story I've heard of somewhere where, wow, how learning characters really provided that catalyst for you learning Chinese. Yeah, no question. It opened the door. So right now in your life here yeah. in China, how important is literacy to your life here in China or your business or just in Chinese in general? I tell you what, it would. Um, I'm in an organization now where I'm the only full-time foreigner and uh, the staff level, uh, their English language capabilities, at senior staff are all pretty good. But there is, uh, in staff meetings, I'm not the most senior person, right? And the most senior person in the organization is Chinese. He's from Taiwan. So when things get a little difficult, if I was the senior person, they would still make an effort to speak in, in English. Now that I'm not the senior person, if the conversation gets a little too technical and they have a hard time expressing it, 
it'll flip over to Chinese. So it's really important that I'm able to follow as much of that as I can. So it's actually very important to my current situation. Although I got to tell you, after I was been in China a long time, but I left for about a year, and um, you know, it deteriorates. Your capabilities deteriorate pretty quick. Fortunately, uh, there's a lot of language translation apps that exist today that uh, make things a little bit easier. But but actually, I don't use those. Uh, some of the, the operators will use them if they think I'm having a hard time with it. Uh, and they usually write if I, they sense I'm having a hard time with it. Uh, again, the apps do exist, and I have avoided those. And actually, I don't know if you've used them at all. Do you use them? Um, uh, Playco. I use uh, like oh. a dictionary, but okay. Yeah. Well, the ones where you can actually use the optical capabilities of the of the phone yeah, and have that, it translate the characters. It can come in handy. It can it, come. It, in it handy. can. Uh, although I, I've used it sometimes, and sometimes the translation makes no sense either. So yeah, it, I, uh, I usually don't have it automatically translated. It's, I use it more of a, a dictionary function where oh. I can click on a character or look up a character I don't oh, know. Okay, so that's how I use it. All right, see, so my age, uh, I'm, I'm beyond that now too. <laughs> all that stuff came too late, right? Yeah. So if it come 10 years earlier, I would have figured out how to do it. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of your senior citizens now. So, <laughs> Well, if you could go back and do anything differently, yeah. what would you do differently? Oh, uh, it, it, clearly I'd, I'd start reading uh, from day one. I would take a completely different approach to learning Chinese. The pinyin method is just, it's, as I said, it's, it's very, very limiting. And I thought uh, that that was the only way to do it because that's the way people had been doing it. I would have gone right from day one and say, teach me how to read. So yeah. pinyin method, you're you're talking specifically like just using pinyin and not characters. Yeah, yeah, right, right, okay. right. Yeah, because sometimes you'll see both the pinyin and the characters. At that time, they were just showing the pinyin, and that's all. Right, and that, uh, again, it's, 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 it's not a good method. Yeah, I agree with you. I think pinyin, it, it, it's incomplete because it doesn't have the full character. Right, I mean, right. pinyin, it's necessary, I'm, and I'm really grateful we have it, but yeah. when you're learning that alone without characters, then... Yeah, and, and what I found too, what I found is is actually reading is is it, it looks like a daunting task, doesn't it? And people say, well, how many characters are there? And I said, well, I don't know. There's five thousand, six thousand, or something like that. But to read a newspaper, what's the number? Three thousand. About three thousand. Three thousand. Yeah. Okay. And when you think about that, three thousand, you go, oh no, that's that's a mountain. I can't I can't climb. But there's there's kind of a system to it. You find out at least from many of the characters. There's the you know the character itself and the radical and. And once you figure out what the, the radicals mean and then what some of the characters generally mean, you get a pretty good idea of what something what's going on with some of those those characters. And again, that unlocks a whole other aspect of, of learning Chinese once you learn the basic system. Now, it, what's true also is that that, that system is, doesn't universally apply, right? There's just as many exceptions as there are rules. But, but that's definitely what I would do. I'd start reading earlier. And any advice you give to someone who's learning Chinese right now? Uh, well, you got to spend a lot of time on it, right? So you got to get right in. And um, I think the people who have been successful with it, again, are the ones that are, like I said, have been forced to use it or forced themselves to use it. So those people who are intrepid about going out and uh, spending the day wandering around town and, and maybe they got their, you know, you go out with a list of things. Here's what I'm going to talk about today, right? Make a list of 10 things, that uh, subjects that I know about and go talk to the uh, the guy who makes noodles, right? And I'm going to ask questions about noodles. So I was never that adventurous that I would go out and do something like that. But people do do that, and, and they're going to win. They're going to be much more successful. And the other way is, uh, I mean, just going and um, taking a job that forces you into a situation where you just have to use it every day. So people, there's people that I know that I've run across a couple of quality engineers that travel around the country, 
And I remember one of them saying to me, he said, look, I go to some really remote places and I don't have any help. And I didn't speak any Chinese when I got here, but I'm pretty good at it now because I had to. Mm. The other thing I found that people, uh, some of the, way back when, this goes back in the, in the dark ages in the 1980s, <laughs> there's a group of Americans that I know, and some of them are still around here. After they studied at university, they all went to Taiwan and they studied for a year or two. And that was the group that was at the pointy end of the spear on the development or the involvement of foreigners with the development of China in the 1990s. And those guys, I found that those, those guys were all pretty good. Those guys were all really good, but that's how they, they learned it. But they weren't fully involved in work or any other distraction at the time. So for me, it was a lot harder because I couldn't – I came over here to work, right? And so you really got to dedicate a lot of time to, to studying it, and it's hard to do both. So I had a distinct advantage. But coming over here and studying for a year, six months, a year, and immersing yourself, there, there's a lot of people that have – succeeded that way too. And actually, I see a lot of younger people out here today, actually a surprising number, who have pretty good language skills. And I think some of them came over here to study in immersion programs. But also, I believe there's programs, you were just telling me about your kids back in the, yeah, back they're, in the U.S. They're in dual immersion programs. Immersion programs that yeah. that will uh, certainly, well, it's just the word immersion, right? That, that's the, that's yeah. the trick. That's what you got to do. You know, it's interesting. I think uh, there's, I was reading an article recently, there's a, been a real shift even on language education in general, at least in the United States. I mean, when I was in high school, I took French. I speak zero French. I came out of the speaking like very, like almost nothing. And <laughs> here you go. You know? And so there, I think there's just been a real shift as well in how yeah. language education is approached, yeah. probably globally even. And yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah, certainly. Thing. Yeah, certainly in America, I think people now recognize that. It, I mean, when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, that uh, you had a, a couple of language options in school, and Spanish and French, and maybe German was the other one too. But most people took what the, the minimum was, which was two years, and then you, you stopped. So I took two years. And as Americans, we didn't think learning another language was all that important, so we didn't do it. But now I, I, I hope people realize it's much more important, and it sounds like a lot of schools uh, do realize the value of it, which is good. Do you have any funny stories about learning Chinese? Oh, that happens every day. Uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of one instance, but <laughs> but I do find myself that uh, uh, occasionally I, and often I will say something, and then I will realize maybe 10 minutes later, oh no, I, I, that was the wrong word. I said the wrong thing. No wonder they didn't uh, didn't understand me. There's there's always an, a, a, a back and forth with taxi drivers that I find interesting, and actually one story, not so much about me speaking Chinese, but about the the taxi driver trying to speak English to us. I think my wife was sitting out. I think she was in the car at the time. I don't know where we were going, but this taxi driver decided that he wanted to tell us all the, the English language words that he knew. And all of them were just English language profanity. It was like every, every, oh, no. every word that he could think of. <laughs> and he just kept coming out one after the other, all these words, and we were dying laughing because he just said it, and he was laughing the whole time, too. He didn't realize how profane everything that he said was. And that was probably the most entertaining uh, cab ride we've ever had in uh, in Shanghai. Well, you get some quite some characters in those cabs sometimes. <laughs> you do, absolutely. Well, hey, Dan, I, I, this has been really great. Uh, thanks for sharing your experience, especially in that perspective you have. Jared, it's good to see you. It's good to talk to you today. Yeah. You, you remember that taxi ride, right? You remember that taxi ride? I do remember. I knew exactly what you said when you said, when you said that he was going to tell us all the English words. <laughs> 
You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, pharmacists, dog walkers, secretary, handyman, Chinese teacher, banker, and that one guy named Zach. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. Apologies to Mark Zuckerberg. We just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner. I'd like to thank Daniel Keefe and my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pazin. See you next time.